Hello and welcome to the third episode in this series of the Fashion Founder podcast. If this is your first time listening, I'm your host Charlotte and I'm a fashion business consultant and I work with founders so that they can start and scale their own fashion brand. This is a podcast built for founders and aspiring founders in the fashion industry. We will be sharing industry insights, talking with fashion business owners and experts and debunking industry myths and problems. Starting a business in the fashion industry, designing, producing and marketing your products isn't easy and can sometimes be lonely. I wanted to use this podcast as a place where you can learn about the fashion industry in all of its glory. If you haven't already checked out my other episodes, make sure to give those a listen. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Amber Cotri, founder of House of Zana, an independent fashion brand and boutique based in the northeast of England. We're going to be talking a little bit about sustainability in the fashion space and also discuss how she found herself in a legal battle with the high street giant Zara. Okay, so how are you today, Amber? Very well, thank you. Very cold in this uh, December, but yeah, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. Oh no, thank you for coming on and absolutely it is minus three today in Manchester so it's yeah it's pretty brisk. So I guess the first place to start is from the beginning that would make a lot of sense. So could you talk us through your journey into the fashion space and what actually led you to open up your own boutique and yeah start your own fashion business? Um, yeah, so my background is actually in um, fine arts. I studied that um, at York St. John's and then I decided to move to Italy. I kind of just wanted to get away from the UK and sort of discover other places, um, even though, yeah, it's typical, isn't it? You end up discovering more of other places and not of the UK. Now I'm back, I'm like, wow, the UK is amazing as well. <laughs> but I moved to Italy, um, like sort of chasing the sun a bit. And then um, I was working there and then decided, actually, I wanted to carry on education um, so I did my master's in Italy and I did six months in Florence and then six months in Rome. And when I look at the business now, I definitely think that, um, you know, I was inspired um, from that journey, from how Italy is. But also I studied arts management, which I guess is, you know, still related to the arts, but more the management side, which is very much what I'm doing, like in my everyday here with the business. In Italy, I then met my husband, who is Albanian, which is kind of where this journey of this business started. And we decided to sort of leave Italy and start afresh. And we actually moved to Tirana, which is the capital of Albania. Um, And when I was there, I sort of, you know, I was feeling a bit lost. Like, you know, what am I going to do? I don't speak the language. Like, how can I, you know, how can I have my own kind of life here? Um, And I realized there were so many seamstresses around, like loads of dressmakers, And that's something that I felt was kind of missing in the UK. I found it just, you know, incredible. You could go and pick your fabric, get a dress made, get measured. And, you know, it was just like amazing for me. So I had quite a dress made for myself. um, And then, you know, I wore them to weddings and people were like, oh, I love your dress. And it was really nice to be like, oh, actually, you know, I designed this and I had it made. And so I started making things for friends. And then, you know, the Instagram page started and it just, it really just grew like organically in that way. And then I decided, you know, it's it's time. My husband can't translate all the time for me. I have to start and learn the language. So then I went to Albanian classes and learned the language, which was a massive um, step up for me because it meant that I could then go and see dressmakers and, like, you know, talk to them on my own completely, go and buy the fabric, which has then led to me opening my own place where we can now make all of our garments and I can speak to the girls every day on WhatsApp. But I just think that, um, yeah, the journey through art has led me to this. But even though my background isn't in fashion, I think if you have that kind of design flair, you know, you can sort of put it to anything. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very transferable. If you're interested in one creative area of the industry, then it can definitely sort of take you through to the fashion space. Yeah. When was it that you realized the fashion industry was for you? Did you like grow up as like a young girl, like being interested in clothing or was it something that you just sort of like fell into? I mean, yeah, I think I'd never really thought about, I know this sounds a bit a bit crazy, but I'd never really thought about my style being, say, different to anyone else's or, you know, being a bit out there. But now, really, being in this space and standing in here a lot in the boutique, people come in all the time and they're like, wow, like, I love what you're wearing. Or, wow, that's really, like, you know, out there. And I've always kind of dressed in this way. So I guess, yeah, I've always sort of had a bit of a, a unique style. But my mum definitely does. Like, you know, she's really stylish. She always wears, like, cool hats or cool things she's not like shy to sort of show her personality in her clothing and my granddad as well he is like kind of like eccentric in the way that he dresses it's really I love it it's like really 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 cool you know always with like different color like handkerchief or just stripy jackets those type of things and I think yeah I suppose growing up like that you do take from that without realizing it and now yeah having having my business I'm not scared to have just looking at now um blue feathers with this orange silky jacket I'm not <laughs> It's like the whole shop it all clashes but you know the, the clients like it and, and I love it I love being surrounded by colors so. yeah absolutely there's something to be said for being able to sort of express yourself in your clothing and like being around that it, it's a really yeah it's a really good feeling so when did you open the boutique um yeah so we opened here in November 2019 um had a great Christmas it was great I was like oh my gosh I can't wait for this because actually um the business started with more wholesale so my plan was to have my products in other people's boutiques but when I was kind of looking for office space um and you know storage I thought do you know for the prices of this I might as well have a shop front it'd be so much nicer and then I can also have the storeroom upstairs so yeah we did that in November 2019 it was all going so well and then it was the pandemic yeah. so I was like I can't believe I've been open for like yeah less than three months and we're closing so it's been a bit you know on and off with that but it has been for everyone so we've all been in kind of the same position but I feel this is the first year really that we've been able to give it you know a good go in the in the shop and um, without having the pressures of like do people have to wear masks do people have to you know stay at home all of that um, and then we did open as well last year um, a store in Teesside Airport um, which has also oh, been you know fantastic. yeah so for the products that we sell obviously it's it's perfect because it's like holiday type items yeah. um, but again the first year was that was very strange because of the flights but this is the first real year I would say that you know I'm starting to see what customers want in each boutique because there is a big difference yeah absolutely I think you'll notice there'll be a slightly different shift in in what people want in different areas do you have e-commerce as well then so like during the pandemic were you able to sort of fall back on like web sales so in the pandemic, um, it was a bit difficult. I mean, the kimonos are great because they can be worn as, you know, like house coats, loungewear. So that was that was fine. But a lot of the items that I had just um, that had just arrived in January were my like spring summer dresses. And because I was just starting the business and I'd seen sort of the sales from December, I was really ready to go for it. So yeah. I kind of had these dresses and no one was going anywhere. So I had to really like diversify and I went into sort of loungewear. But actually, if I'm honest, um, at that time, I was pregnant as well with my daughter. She was born in that June um, in 2020. And I think I was, I don't know, I was maybe just a bit sort of, I didn't really know where I was going with it. Instead of concentrating on, on the negatives, I decided actually that we were going to um, make scrubs for the NHS. So during the pandemic, rather than concentrate solely on the online of my business, actually, we did make a lot of scrubs for NHS staff with Catherine Hart, who had the upstairs in the store at the time. Um, and that was just a really nice feeling. It kind of kept us busy because, you know, 
when you were just at home sometimes you were just thinking about everything it was obviously a very stressful time um so yeah I, I pushed that more and it's really now at this point after everything that's happened with the recent court case which I'm sure we'll touch upon um this is the time that I've decided to go for my website and actually beginning of next year I'm launching a brand new um like yeah all singing all dancing websites I'm very excited for this Oh, that's amazing. That sounds really exciting. So House of Zana is a small, independent, sustainable brand. And obviously your boutique stocks, small, independent businesses too. When did you sort of make that sustainable shift? Was that something that you has like always been a priority to you? Or is that something that you slowly develop into this sort of clothing space? Um, no, it's definitely always been from the beginning um, a sustainable brand. I mean, obviously, it's always been an ethical brand as well. But I do find that word, um, I do find using that word a bit strange because to me, the girls who like make all our clothes, they're my friends now. So we speak every day. You know, I go to Albania all of the time, which is where everything's made. So it feels a bit strange to class it as, you know, ethical or this because I'm like, well, yeah, we're like all friends. It is. <laughs> obviously, it is, but obviously, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's a bit of a strange one for me, but it's been from the very beginning like that because that's like the main roots in the business. Um, like for example, any offcuts of fabric we have, we make scrunchies, headbands, you know, silk scarves. There's literally like no waste of anything. Um, because yeah, I want to make sure that you know that we are being good to the planet. Because I sometimes do wake up and I think like, oh gosh, there's just so much fast fashion and it makes me feel like like actually sick. I know that sounds crazy, but there's yeah. just sometimes clothes everywhere but what I I love about our brand is that you know the kimonos last a lifetime so once you have that you can wash it as many times as you want wear it as many times as you want and literally it's not going anywhere it's not just something that you wear one season then you think oh that was rubbish quality and you have to throw it away it's something that lasts will literally last you forever Absolutely. And I think that's where sustainability starts in the very beginning with the design, the longevity, the initial infrastructure of the product first. Like, will they stand the test of time? Will we be able to wash it and it last well? So the last thing Mm -hmm. you want is to pop something that you bought, expected it to, you know, see you through into the washing machine and then it falls to pieces. And it was just completely non-redundant, which you do often find with faster fashion brands um like high street retailers as well like sometimes you can only wear something once or twice before it bobbles or it pills or yeah. the seams come away so I think sometimes it's really just understanding that sustainability isn't always you know all of these buzzwords and the recycled fabric oh. and the this and the that yeah. it's actually just the longevity and how long that garment will last in your wardrobe and it's how long it's taken for it to, you know, arrive on the rails. So, for example, when I design something and, you know, have it made, then I will wear it. Or I'll get friends to wear it and I'll say, how does that feel? How does that feel? You know, to make sure it's perfect before we make it. Whereas, you know, I'm sure you see many of these these programs now about fast fashion brands where it's like they see the photo on the catwalk and they're like, quickly, let's copy this. They're not caring about the fit. They're not caring about the yeah. fabric here tomorrow. And I think, yeah. That obviously is another massive part of fast fashion that they're, they're copying people, but they're just creating things in mass that people can't really wear because probably the fit's not right. You know, to get it right and to make it sustainable, you need to have that practice with with everything and, you know, wear it and get it right before you then create it for your customer. Hopefully, I think people on maybe even new founders or even people who don't quite have a, a, a 
great overview of the sampling, the production process, might go into the expectation that all it takes is, okay, here's an inspiration image, let's just go straight into production, when actually it takes, you know, as you say, from from a design to market, it can take months of development, sampling, actually testing, fit sessions to make sure that it's suitable and fit for purpose, testing fabrics and and also like the trims and the construction techniques and making yeah. sure that this garment is fully resolved and ready to be you know like to be commercialized yeah and I'm sure you're the same with this I think once you get into this um kind of world it is for me anyway very difficult to buy things from um from fast fashion places because yes. when you actually why is the label in that position? Obviously, that's going to like annoy my skin. Why is this there? And you start to realise actually how terribly these things are made. And now, yeah, I would much rather, obviously, I make a lot of things for myself, but I'd much rather buy from these independent sustainable brands or even some of the bigger names because you, originally you might think, oh, that's expensive. But no, it's not because that will last you. For my children, I can pass that down. You know, whereas the fast fashion things, you have to buy 20 of those pieces because they're not going to last you, like you said, one season. So really, the, the more expensive things or the better quality things, should I say, are the bits that you need to be buying because actually that's the thing that's going to last through your lifetime. And I think that's what fashion should be about. It should be something that you can wear so many times that you create so many memories with and then you can pass it down. Like I have really nice pieces of clothing from when I was little or from my mum from when she was younger that I can wear now and I know will actually last until, you know, my children are older and I can pass them down. And, and how nice is that, that you have that story through generations? Definitely, definitely. I think it's sort of like that cost per wear perspective as well. Because yeah. as you say, with fast fashion, you might pay, let's say, £20 for a top and it could last you one wear, but you could yeah. pay £100 for a sustainably, ethically made real quality piece that you know is going to you know stand the test of time and it could last you 50 wears so when you look at it like that it's actually you know more affordable quote unquote to to buy more quality sustainable like higher price point pieces because you know that that you're not going to have to then replace them in a few months time it's like this that whole idea of you buy cheap you end up buying twice totally and I think what's difficult as well which you touched on before is that the word sustainable is kind of thrown around a bit too much now. And because you can have, say, recycled fabrics, a lot of these fast fashion brands say we're sustainable because maybe they're using recycled fabric, which is great too, but they're still making it in the same kind of factories with the same kind of speed, the same kind of pressure for workers. So really part of the item may be sustainable but it's not the whole package whereas obviously what we have it's from you know like you said from design to pattern cutting everything is sustainable the girls are not working in in high pressure I say to them like when will this order be finished and then I can then be like okay I'll plan around that I don't say this is your deadline you know because I, I just that's just not how I would like to work because I don't feel like you get the best from your team and you don't get the best out of the ga- the garment because obviously there's mistakes we're all human so I think yeah the word sustainable it's it is hard to sort of get that across to my clients sometimes because there's sort of so much noise around that word yeah of course it's sustainable everything is you know definitely and I think a lot of people don't understand that there's two elements of sustainability as well it's not just just like we've said sustainable in terms of fabrics and the actual garment itself but the ethical side of things as well and it's all well and good like you say these faster fashion brands the high street retailer saying this is made from 100% recycled fabric and and you know this is part of our conscious range but if someone's not being paid a living wage yeah. you know that they're, they're, they're working long hours that worker welfare is just not where it should be 
that garment isn't sustainable. It's like there's a huge disconnect between what ethical and sustainable actually means. And I think these smaller brands and smaller independent businesses can like be the voice for that and actually like educate consumers on what sustainable fashion actually means. Yeah, definitely. And I think like with my brand, it's kind of, you know, I didn't plan to start a fashion brand and then like search for someone to manufacture it. It was the opposite way. It was kind of by meeting these these ladies that had this amazing skill and were so talented and creating pieces myself. It grew naturally into that. And therefore, I, I think it's, you know, it's their skill that's, that, that created my business. So I, I want to yeah. obviously, you know, keep that. And obviously, yes, I have started the business in the UK and that's where the boutiques are. But for me, it's not about having... Um, a, a studio in Albania because you know it's cheaper there or anything for me it's the fact that my husband is from there I want the children to spend as much time there so it gives me the chance to spend an equal amount of time in Albania as in the UK to learn like obviously to learn Albanian to have English for the children to have both so for me it's it's about having that you know that same quality for everyone across the whole brand and the girls here you know speak through me obviously because of the language to the girls there and we're like a joint team we just happen to be across two countries whereas I think a lot of these other brands class it as you know oh it's just far away so we don't have to think about what they're doing as long as we get the item it doesn't really matter but to me that's just horrifying and when I go into these bigger shops you know I sometimes think like I, I can't even believe how how this stuff will have been made and it's just yeah. actually a lot <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think, like you say, they see it as two separate entities when they are fully responsible for their supply chain. And I, I do think, you know, that, you know, you see that on television when they do features on, you know, the real ultra fast fashion brands. And it's like they just they just don't care. It's a complete disconnect yeah. because it's on the other side of the world. It's not our problem. We just yeah. we get our pieces and we get it at a very, very low cost as quickly as possible. So I totally agree. And and you do you you walk into these shops on the high street and you just think these aren't going to last they're just the, the seams are coming away the, the, there's no attention to detail and the reason that is is because people are just being pushed to get however many garments completed within a certain amount of time so it's not necessarily a matter of skill but it's just the speed in which people are being expected to to produce these items yeah that's definitely what it is it's to do with the speed and, and the pressure that people must be under is is incredible like I was watching this program on Netflix I'm sure you know which one I'm talking yeah. about yeah <laughs> I believe the amount of garments they were ordering like to come in a few days time you know and I was yeah. thinking how workers you have that is an incredible number I mean you know that is working under some serious pressure clearly over the amount of hours that you're meant to work but more so it's the stress of working under that under that level of pressure I mean yes you know I sometimes work under pressure I'm sure you do it's normal but that amount of pressure it's for the wage that you're getting it's, it's not right but it's it's how to sort of get that across to the consumer without going on and on so for me it's rather than concentrate on that noise all the time I try to more so you know tell people about what we're doing here and I do feel like there has been a big shift recently with people really, you know, liking the story, you know, liking to know that I do speak to the girls every day and that I do know who the team is. So I think there is a lot of people out there now that are starting to become more conscious to yeah, how ridiculous this is. And if we don't stop it now at this generation, like what's going to happen? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I read something recently that uh, around 66 percent of consumers actually do take an interest in oh their supply chain, where their products are actually made and whether, you know, conscious steps have been taken to, to be yeah. more conscious at the end of the yeah. day, uh, which is really good to hear because I think that's really? definitely a higher number than what I would have expected. Yeah. Um, but then when you look at the market share of 
sustainable brands you know it's it's these fast fashion brands these ultra fast fashion brands that are still like dominating the industry and I think it's really good to see these documentaries like you were referring to come to light and people are starting to talk more about it and I don't think it's a matter of people don't care I think a lot of the time it's people just don't know yeah yeah that's true as well and I think a lot of the time as well because the prices in these shops are so low people then you know see other brands and they think oh I could get that but it's, it's not you have to be conscious yourself to make that decision because obviously yes my product is not the same as the high street products anyway but also the price has to be relevant and I do think my my items are priced like you know very well very affordable as well and sometimes it, it is frustrating for me to think how are the prices so low in some shops but then also on the other way this party season I've noticed that so many prices in the high street shops are like double triple the prices of mine and I'm thinking but why? Because the quality is rubbish. It annoys me on both different sides. But I spoke to someone about this the other day and they said, well, they probably put the prices up at this time so that they can then reduce them by 80% on Boxing Day. And I was like, actually, yeah, you're right. It's not yeah. even just more of a, a mind thing. So you feel like you're getting a deal on <laughs> Boxing Day. Yeah, just really inflating them so that yeah. they can then bring them back down to the level okay. that they would have actually sat at otherwise. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely something that's becoming more apparent and I think if you look at these products on the high street and you actually think right okay so it is 50 pound for a jacket let's say and if you really break that down you think okay well materials might cost x amount trims might cost x amount and then you're looking into labor costs thinking like a living wage like hourly rate how are people actually being paid within that I think when you really break it down like that it's actually it's really scary you know when you when you see these adverts for like the ultra fast fashion brands where you're getting things for five pound it is just yeah it's it's really concerning and just as you were talking about that documentary and they were you know haggling down the cost price per unit and just really start like trying to to test the waters to bring that price down so that they could sell more stock for higher retail price seeing a higher margin you know and they still see a good 75 percent margin on these products which again is just an even scarier thought but I I really like to see that more and more businesses are are coming to light and I guess that's very much what I do with my clients is making sure that we can help build this sustainable conscious space and build that market share of of brands that really do care yeah and that's the thing it's just making sure that now like businesses that start from now you know have that from the beginning like I have and then therefore you know we can build forward I don't know if we can you know necessarily stop what people do the brands are already doing but as long as the clients are conscious of it it will naturally sort of change because I do feel like the design teams within these fast fashion brands are amazing you know Mm. some of the the clothing that I've seen especially the children's wear and stuff the designs are beautiful but the quality is terrible and I just think it's such a shame that that design as well is being wasted on such a fast fashion because then it's gone but you know it was actually well designed it was you know a nice print or and I but it's just wasted on such terrible quality cotton or and yeah that that is a shame as well but I, I guess with time if people keep having these conversations eventually you know crazier things have changed in history so definitely I definitely think we're making that shift and and just as you say we can't necessarily fix these problems on a higher scale but what we can do is focus on yeah the the smaller independent businesses that are, are making the the right decisions but you're a mum of two that's right isn't it two Three. Three? Oh. Three. And mum of three. Yeah. Mum of three. Wow. Okay. So how do you balance being a business owner and a mum and all of the other responsibilities that life throws at you? 
Um, well, I think being a mum, I mean, they're all little. My eldest is three. So I have like a three-year-old, two-year-old and a 10-month-old. Oh, wow. They're so, close together. <laughs> but I do feel that being a mum, especially to toddlers, you learn so many skills that you need for a business. Like your negotiation skills are just like, you know, so on point <laughs> children. It's crazy. But also like your patience, there's, there's just so much stuff. And you, you don't realise as well how much you can do with your time because obviously I'm juggling in a different way, you know, thinking of logistics, where are they going? Where am I going? So I feel like, you know, all of this has sort of come together in a way and, and I've grown so much as a person from being a mum. Um, but I do try to keep the balance at like the days that I'm with them. I do really try to say to the team, like, don't contact me on those days because otherwise, you know, it's so easy with your phone to the next thing you're doing an email and the next thing you're drawn into something that I'm like, well, that can wait till tomorrow. But that has took time to build up because obviously when I was first building the business, it needed more of my attention. Um, so that was difficult because I had Casper, who he was only six months when I opened the, the shop, the first shop. So that was a bit of a difficult juggling act. But I think I've just learned through the growth of them and, and the growth of myself in the business that actually things can wait till the next day. It doesn't have to be answered in that moment, but it does take time to sort of, you know, build the confidence to, to say that and to sort of turn your phone off. Um, so it is hard to juggle. It, it definitely is, especially because none of them are in school yet. But yeah. I, I, I love it. I mean, I love having my freedom of going to work. I love the business. It's like a passion more so. Um, and obviously I love being with them and they're a really fun age. Uh, I was talking to someone yesterday and saying that I feel like I'm learning so much from them because they're at that age where they're asking all the time, why this, why that? You know, it's yeah. a really great learning age. So you sort of go back to those questions and you think, oh gosh, why is that? Or what is the name of that? Phone? <laughs> oh gosh, I need to like, so I do feel like I'm learning all through them, which is, um, yeah, it's really, really nice. Yeah, I've never looked at it that way before, but that's yeah. really interesting. And I think, yeah, it is. I mean, I'm obviously I'm not a mum, but I think it's it's about setting those boundaries, isn't it? In in any yeah. instance in business, making sure that if your phone is off or if you're not picking up work related messages or emails, that you are fully off and you're doing something that you know sparks joy that is outside of you know yeah. your your business bubble. And it can be really difficult, I think, anyone going in, into like the business space, whatever industry they're they're going into, I think it's such a, a challenging aspect that you don't even really consider beforehand that those boundaries are going to be really hard to set in place, but they're going to make things so much more enjoyable. They're going to, you know, reduce that chance of burnout if you do put them in place and, and set them. Yeah. And, and I do think being a self-employed makes it easier for me because I easier and harder in certain ways, because obviously there's no sort of real switch off. Um, you know, I've got to deal with all aspects of the company. There's not like, you know, someone else deals with this, but it's, it's really on me. But in other ways, it means that I can arrange my time. So if I want to see me Santa on this day, it's not like I have to, to check. I can just be like, okay, and I'll arrange everything else around that. So obviously yeah. things with the children can easily come first. And I do also think that um, being able to arrange meetings myself for the morning, for example, is a great time for me because the children are up early anyway. So I take them to nursery and then, you know, mornings are great. Whereas a five o'clock appointment wouldn't really work for me because I want to be able to pick them up. And I do really feel for women that are in um, other industries where they're working for someone else. And it's kind of like, let's have drinks after work and let's do this. And you sort of feel like always frustrated, I imagine, because I've, I've been in this situation before where it's like, well, I can't do that because I have children. But you don't want that to be the reason. But also you want to own the fact that, well, no, I have children. But then you also yeah. don't want to back because a man can go to the meeting and it is a, a constant conversation that I know a lot of people are having and you know I really try and work on it now with my children with the way that you know they say things or they do things because 
it is sort of embedded in us unfortunately to to say things in a certain way and I'm very conscious to make sure that my son knows that my daughter's as strong as him or that I'm as strong as his dad and you know you just try to you know get this message across now when they're little because it's it's so natural I don't even know where they get it from for them to say certain things and I'm like no don't say that but it's programs they watch it's it's crazy and it's just as us as parents I guess to sort of you know create that that balance for them and, and make sure that we're sort of doing what our parents didn't do which is just a generational thing it's not anyone's fault definitely yeah yeah the equality going forward yeah I definitely think it, it's this generation that's sort of like broken that narrative or that tra- yeah. trauma let's say and yeah. really starting to like <laughs> really starting to you know gentle parenting and removing that diet culture aspect that like you was referring to with feminism and so and I think it's really good to see I think it's been really like a long time coming and I think it's I'm proud to say that it was sort of like our generation that's like made that shift honestly I could talk to you about this for another two hours because like, <laughs> I'm so into this. like yes it's so important but like you said it's our responsibility as this generation of parents to pass on that message that hopefully all our children grow up with that kind of same mindset so in 2020 was it the fashion brand giant <laughs> Zara took you to court and they it was because they believe that your names were conceptually identical and that your small business would be a risk to their brand fortunately you did win the battle which is absolutely amazing but could you tell us a little bit more about that and how did yeah how did you find yourself being in a legal opposition with a high street retailer yeah, well, actually, this this follows really well on from what we've just been discussing with the children, because one of the main um, things for me was waking up, you know, those days you wake up and think, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? How can I fight this? I did have the children there as a massive push for me because I kept thinking I cannot just back down to this company because it's bigger than me. Like, I want yeah. to want children, even if I'm unsuccessful. I fought for what I believed in. And that was a really big thing to me. I kept reminding myself that I really want to one day tell them this story. <laughs> because, yeah, it's so true. How could I just be like, oh, well, I had this business once. And then, oh, yeah, Zara told me to close. So that was that. Like, there's just no way. <laughs> but, yeah, they they basically sent me a letter um, like through email that just said that um, I had three months to close down and, well, to rebrand, actually. But, I mean, that's closing down and it was had to take all the tickets out of the clothing close down the social media obviously the website take the signage off the shop it was like listed in this way and it said that I had three months to do it and I had to just sign at the bottom um and if not they would obviously take legal action so when I first received the letter I I didn't think it was a joke I was just so shocked and it didn't say it was Zara it said Inditex and to be honest I didn't actually know who Inditex was at that time so I was googling it and I was thinking, like, what? Who is this? You know, the old Zara Bershka, all of these. Yeah. Um, and I was really shocked. And then I received, um, I didn't sign the letter. And then this date that they'd given me to sign by passed. And I was just kind of waiting. And then I received correspondence from the IPO, which is the trademark. Yeah. Um, and said that, you know, someone has taken um, legal action against this and that I had to give evidence. And then this went on for a year and a half of um Inditex which is obviously Zara giving their evidence um about why they wanted me to rebrand and their their main argument was that the average consumer would be confused between my brand House Zana and their brand Zara and I think that was the main thing that allowed me to keep fighting because I just kept repeating that sentence to myself uh, how ridiculous that is no one yeah. is ever going confused so even when they were sending me like 96 pages of evidence of like, you know, how much stock they've bought in the millions, how uh, many magazines have been and how many times they've been in Vogue. They kept sending me all this evidence. And 
even though that was very intimidating and very scary, I just kept reminding myself that their main argument is that, and that is not like, you know, I do not believe that the average consumer has ever or ever will be confused between our brands. Yeah. Um, and then it was, was, was more so, to be honest, just um, common sense things such as Zara is one word, House of Zana is three words, you know, their, their font is more capitals. It was really just common sense things that we had to show. Um, but there was no, we never came to any kind of agreement, even though they kept um, sort of, you know, pushing with these intimidating letters about closing down and maybe extending the time to close down. And, you know, so anyway, it ended up in a court hearing. But this was after a year and a half. Um, and I never had any legal team. I just did it all myself. Like the girls, obviously, in my team, Olivia, especially, she helped me so much with writing. Because, again, I was having um, my third child at that point, And the last evidence was in the January and she was born in the January. So it was such a stressful time, like, yeah. you know, trying to get documents together for this deadline, but knowing that at some point the baby was going to arrive, it was really stressful. Um, and then we decided in that January to sort of go public with it because I was, I was, maybe I was kind of getting to that point where I thought, oh my gosh, if I'm unsuccessful and I have to close down, no one's ever going to know what happened. Mm. Um, so yeah, we did an online petition and we put it on social media and it just went absolutely crazy. I thought maybe 500 people from Darlington would sign it, but it was yeah. 90,000 90, people signed the petition to say that like wow. they disagreed basically with, with what was happening and they didn't think that the brands were, you know, conceptually, visually, anything the same. Um, and that gave me a massive boost of confidence for going to the court hearing because I thought if 90,000 people, you know, the average consumer isn't, you know, confused, therefore that's the whole point that we're arguing for. And that definitely gave me a massive boost of confidence. And I think the fact that you're actually able to make that impact around it as well and, and really spread the word, I think that's the power of social media at the end of the day, isn't it? When can really just reach the masses. So do you yeah. think that probably what pushed things along a little bit? Yeah, so um, I did try to use the petition as evidence, but it was so last minute um, that I wasn't allowed to use it. But I think it's maybe because, you know, it is, like I said, that, that petition was the average consumer that's exactly what that was um yeah. but for the court hearing that was in the in the may luckily it was over zoom because like i said i had the this little baby in the house um, and yeah. so i looked at it in london um but yeah it was honestly i can't believe how much i grew from doing that so to sit against their lawyers and to talk about my brand with kind of like this is my moment yeah, I feel like I grew so much in that and, and, and grew so much, like fell so much more in love with the brand because I felt like, yeah, I'm fighting for this. Um, and their lawyer kind of went through their evidence, which some of it, to be honest, was laughable because it's like nobody's ever come into my store and spent money, which is like thinking that they're in Zara. There's no way that's going to happen. It's <laughs> that you could suggest that, you know, yeah. no one ever, like none of their representatives ever came to look at my store or anything. So um, they went through their evidence and then I had to go through my evidence um, and they sort of asked me like you know do you admit that Zara is like a well-known brand and I was like yes I do admit that and that's kind of my point as well no one's going to get confused because they know who you are mm. um, and yeah it went on like this it was it was fine like I invited like the press there so they could kind of listen into what was going on um, but the the last moment in the call the lawyer leant out of the call and spoke to her client and she came back into the call and she was like oh one more thing my client has requested that if amber is unsuccessful um we'd like to go for the highest level of costs so that was how the the call was left then obviously i had like months of thinking like oh my gosh 
if I lose, I'm going to have to pay. Like, what is this sum going to be? Yeah. And I feel like that was, you know, so intimidating, so cleverly done because it was it was to see if I would like, you know, cave in that last moment. And that that um, sentence then followed by a letter about a week later that said, if you close down, we'll give you six months. And also um, we could maybe discuss, you know, not charging you for our cost. So it was all cleverly planned. And I just feel like going forward, this is what I want to stop because it's not just happened to me. This happened to like 20 other brands that I've spoken to. But their tactics around it isn't that they think that average consumer is going to be confused at all. They just obviously don't want other brands with what they think is similar or maybe the lawyers are keeping themselves in a job, whatever. But I think the wording around this is it needs to be changed because they're deliberately targeting brands that are smaller than them, that are run by probably one person and don't have the funds or the means or the time to fight these. And I think... Yeah, I, I was lucky in a way that I did the petition and that did give me the support. And, you know, I didn't want to close down, like I said, because of the children. But, you know, not everyone's in that position at mm. all. Yeah, it's it's so it's so terrible to think that big businesses like that would be targeting smaller brands. And as you say, you are one person fighting for a small independent business and they are a huge corporation. There's never an, any chance that people are going to mistake you and people aren't going to be walking in expecting that they're shopping with Zara so it's it's pretty insane to think that that even escalated from an initial letter in the first place but was this all during the time of the pandemic as well so it was just after the pandemic when things started to open up um this was happening but because I didn't go public with it and it was kind of because I didn't know if I was allowed to because again I was obviously intimidated about the fact it was Zara and now when I look back I'm like why did I think I wasn't allowed to? Because like, what was going to happen to me? But you do, yeah. you feel, you know? Um, but it just meant for me that I didn't really know what to design. I didn't really know like what to spend money on because I was kind of like, my growth was basically it halted for a year because I had this like hanging over me. Like even with the airport shop, I was so nervous when I was like signing the lease. I spoke to them about it. I said, you know, this is kind of going on behind the scenes. And it was just, it was a very difficult time because I was scared to invest in things in case I had to close down. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was it was really terrible. And like I said, what got me through was the petition, but also speaking to other brands that had gone through this, that had closed down and, you know, people crying to me on the phone, like devastated that their their food company or their um, shoe company, nothing even to do with fashion necessarily, had closed down because of this same letter that I'd received. And that definitely gave me a push to think, well, you know, if this is happening all the time, it's not because they care about my brand. It's just that they do it. And therefore, like, I need to fight it for everyone else kind of thing. And, you know, I spoke a lot with these brands. They sort of showed me evidence that they'd received. So I kind of was a bit more prepared. Um, and now I speak to people, honestly, like about two or three people a week are going through this. And people email me saying they've seen the case and I'll call them and I'll chat through with them and give them whatever advice I can. Because this is happening. Honestly, I can't tell you how much this is happening. It's unbelievable and shocking. Specifically with Zara or just with other brands? Not necessarily just with, with Zara, but with Inditex, it's a big thing. So I'm speaking right. to probably can't say the name, but Bershka is going for them. Um, okay. It's actually the Bershka is going for, so it's still under the Inditex umbrella, but it's not yeah. necessarily just with Zara. But I've spoken to more so with, with Zara, to be fair, but I don't know whether they've sort of um, exhausted their Zara side and now they're moving on. Yeah. I just don't know how it works, but I feel like going forward, I would really like to see, um, and I am trying to work on this, a way that if this happens to you, Okay, fair enough, because I understand people have to be able to defend the trademark. But when it gets to a certain point, there should be some sort of 
mediator when it is with a big business with a with a smaller business there should be someone in between that sort of says well this letter can't be sent because this is intimidating or there should be someone that can help these businesses because you are really on your own with it and you know you don't they, they use such big words as well i know that sounds crazy but they use such big intimidating words yeah. that you think like oh my gosh like is that true but actually no it's not it's very much sort of just how you decide to take it but yeah, I definitely think going forward, there needs to be something done about this because it's happening so often. Do you think the Inditex group just have like a team of people who are just focusing on, you know, this intellectual property side of things? Well, I think I think it comes down to what we discussed earlier about fast fashion brands and where they manufacture. It's the same thing. So I do believe that the lawyers maybe are on some kind of retainer and they are like looking for work to keep them within that, you know, whatever it is that they, they're needing to do. So I do believe it is more so the lawyers actively searching. However, again, I do believe it's the company's responsibility, you know, to know what's happening and to know who's being contacted. I don't think they can say, oh, we didn't know because it's their mm. responsibility to know what is happening with their name. And therefore it just goes back to the fact of the manufacturing and therefore it doesn't shock me because... I mean, where are they manufacturing? So, you yeah, know, exactly. The point is, it's the full ethics throughout the brand, throughout the business. And I would love to speak to a representative of Zara and say to them, you know, I understand that maybe you do want to protect your trademark. I get that. But you should really be reading these letters that are going out to brands. You should be looking at them and you should be thinking, how is that affecting the person that's receiving it? If you do not care, well, there we go then, you know, but if you do care and you want to be better and to change, you should start looking at that and go back to scratch and not just allow other people to take your name and do this if you are conscious about this. If you're not, well, okay, you know, that it is what it is. But I think, therefore, there should be a representative to help us businesses in that position. But I do believe that, you know, it would be great to speak to someone in Inditex Group and say, like, what are you getting from this? Why are you doing it in this way? Is it you? Is it the lawyers? And, like, you know, let's move forward and help other people because, I can't tell you how many people I've had like crying down the phone, devastated that this has happened to them. And there's no yeah. need for it because they weren't affecting your business at all. The Inditex group, which is, you know, turning over billions. And I think it's um, Amanita or Ortega who owns the Inditex group. And I think he's like the second richest man in the world or something crazy. So, you know, they're not, they're not short of cash. So I think yeah. the fact that they are targeting small small brands and and small independent businesses is just yeah exactly as you were saying like a direct reflection of where their ethics and morals lie as as a business yeah and i think what the most interesting thing is if we looked at the statistics of who who they've contacted and who closed down like i do not know of one not one that lost to um inditex in terms of the trademark not one of them actually got to the hearing and then lost that i know of they all you know closed down before or um, signed the letter before because they were obviously scared they were most yeah. of them were like got to the end and we couldn't afford it this happened I don't personally know of any and I've researched a lot and spoken to a lot of people that ever got to that point I'm the only one that I know of and I won so when it actually comes to it most of these brands are within their right to have their name as what they are none of them are just Zara they're all different names you know some of them begin with a t some of them were I mean, like, just so different. Zoetic Limited was a lady that I spoke to. Zasa Life. I mean, they're not the same food companies, shoe companies, pottery companies. Nothing are the same, but yet they've all closed or rebranded. One of them rebranded twice. I mean, like, it's crazy. Nothing's even similar to Zara. But the point is, it's not like they've ever got to the hearing. And that's because the letters are intimidating. And that's because, obviously, Zara has the funds to send more letters than yeah. an and I think, you know, if we were looking at a number and we think, you know, yeah, they've all lost, we'd think, fair enough. Zara standing up for their brand and the IPO are also agreeing. But that's not what's happening here. 
Yeah, it's merely just the Inditex group sending these letters as a bit of a scare tactic to see <laughs> what happens and if the, the the brand owner falls on the other end. And I think just as you say, they're, they're not even distinctively similar. And I think that is, if you look into trademarking and the IPO and actually understanding where there will be like a conflict, it is it's about being conceptually similar or if you can prove that that business has actually directed directly impacted your revenue and taken away from your business and and your sales, which again, like these smaller brands are never going to do that because it's a completely different infrastructure. It's a completely separate concept. These brands are focusing on building a brand, sustainability, one-to-one customer service, whereas these high street retailers are just focused on volume and just getting as much out as quickly as possible that has been trickled down from, you know, like the catwalks and, and higher, higher end stuff. So yeah, it's, I'm just, it's insane to think that you went through that, but I'm so, so glad to hear that you like really fought it and and got the result that you wanted. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, like I said, it once I'd once I had, you know, received the result that I'd won, it made me like, yeah, obviously so proud that I'd won, but also the amount of people coming in here and just overjoyed. And it made made me be able to sit back down with the business and redesign. And you know, now we have like the full sequin collection. I've gone all out with it because I thought yeah. finally I can get back to content. <laughs> the business instead of like this blooming shadow that's obviously it takes up so much time and that's the main thing that you you don't really have you know when you you've got a small business and obviously you have children so yeah winning was just like so much more than winning <laughs> it was just yeah. like oh, like a definitely I bet it allowed you to see things in a new light and just really go all in with things. I do encourage clients at the start of their journey once they've decided on their brand name to get it trademarked to ensure the safety of the brand and its assets, but also to make sure that they don't find themselves with a cease and desist letter. But you'd never envision it being from a household name like Zara. Besides what was probably one of the most stressful times for your business, do you, do you think it had a positive impact? Were you able to like ride off the back of the noise and like the press and, and all that kind of stuff off the back of it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not pretending that it hasn't been absolutely fantastic for, for us. Like, I mean, not not just with, you know, sales chains, obviously being like on BBC National News, being in The Times, all of that was, was fantastic, you know, great exposure. But also personally, the opportunities that I've had, like I was invited to Albania and I did a talk in, in, front, in a room in front of 150 people, something I wouldn't have dreamed of doing before I'd have been petrified you know I've yeah. been invited next year my year is like looking really really great with being on panels you know at, at women's days fashion shows things that have all come off the back of of this obviously yes it's not just the back of what happened like with Zara but it's the fact that I won and the way that I won I guess people were inspired by the fact that I was like no I'm gonna fight it but yeah like for me personally and for the business it's it's been great and I just see the growth coming and it and it is a lot of it direct from this so yeah there is definitely has definitely been a silver lining <laughs> definitely what advice would you give someone who's starting their own sustainable business or opening their own independent boutique or even just going into business as a mom what piece of advice would you give them for for that sort of journey yeah well with the um yeah starting a business and, and thinking about you know the sustainability and all of that I just really think there is um so much going on out there there's so much competition and I think what you need to do is choose what your values are what it is that you want from your brand what makes you unique and what you believe in and stick with that even if it's like 
oh, no one's buying it this week because it's someone else has got, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, there will be your customer out there as long as you know what you believe in, then you show people what you believe in and you're passionate about it. Don't change for someone else because otherwise you will be the same as everyone else. So you have to find it what it is that you want to do and then, you know, grow that. And it is difficult because, yeah, like it is a fast moving, um, you know, space out there and, and it is sometimes hard not to be like, am I doing it wrong? Am I doing it? But no, you're not. You know, you just need to to decide what you're doing and then build that with the passion that you started it with. And I think in terms of people who have children, like mums out there, I would just say, like, don't be so hard on yourself because sometimes it is very frustrating. And, you know, my husband is great and we we go through these things all the time. And sometimes I have mum guilt and then sometimes I think, like, it's not fair. He can do this. But then when I talk about it and have communication, she's like, what are you on about? And I'm like, OK, you know, and, and I think communication is key with this don't hold things in and don't also think you can't grow as much because you have children because that is not true like I really believe that if you can have that conversation within yourself to say I am worth whatever it is that you want to do then you can do that it is difficult it is very difficult but to have equality that's what we have to do we have to say to ourselves like I am worth this and this is what I am going to do obviously you know you have to care with for your children if you want to spend time with them on this day and this day you have to plan that in but you shouldn't feel guilty that you want to do something else because that doesn't make you a bad mum or anything you're still the person that you were before you had children and you know if you want to be a stay-at-home mum be a stay-at-home mum but if you have an urge to do something else don't allow having children to hold you back from that. And it is a very difficult conversation that I have with myself all of the time still. But the point is have the conversation regularly, even with friends, even with family. And it allows you to to grow within, you know, yourself and, and be a better mum, I think, because I, I would one day like to tell my children that, you know, I grew this business. And it doesn't mean I haven't spent time with them because I sp- still spend so much time with them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> not saying it's easy at all I'm not pretending it's easy but I just think you know you, you can do it if you want to yeah amazing I love that and I think there's probably I mean as I said before I'm not a mum so I can't vouch for it but I think there's probably an element of being able to spend more quality time actually okay. like this is my time off so you know I'm not spending any time in my business I'm not answering my emails so this is my time for you and yeah. you I guess from what I would like to think that you are able to spend more one-to-one quality time than if it was sort of like passive, you know, passing ships in the night when you do work full time for a business and you're expected to work overtime and this and that and the other. And it's, you know, very passive time. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be, you have to be a bit structured. You have to, you know, plan ahead when you have children, even like planning their outfits in the morning, the night before, it just makes things easier. But I like to know that these are the days that I'm kind of like fully into work. I make my appointments on those days or I'm in the store or whatever. And then the other days I'll be like, oh, what am I going to book? Where should we go? And it's really fun because it's like, oh, today we're going here, today we're going there. And I would say, obviously, I spend more time with them than I do like actually at work. But yeah, that's and that's the way it is now. And I'm very much aware that once they go to school, there'll be a shift again. But it's kind of just like riding that and see see where it goes without putting too much pressure on yourself. And like I said, it isn't easy, but you, you can do it if you want. But it's just about having that conversation. And if you are frustrated, say it, like say it to your partner, say it to your husband, I think. And, and vice versa for them to say it to you but it's just to constantly talk about it to, to grow yeah absolutely and I think sort of back what you were saying before I think going with the flow I think we're all just winging it at the end of the day mums oh. business owners humans we're all just yeah. we're all just trying to figure out what works for us so I think it really yeah. is just establishing like this works for me and yeah and and like testing you know like trialing things and, and adjusting when they don't work it's been amazing to chat to you 
Thank in you. terms of where people can find you, like online, where people can buy from you, I know obviously your boutique is based in Darlington on yeah. Grange Road. Um, yeah. But in terms of like the online space, where can people find you online? Yeah, so we have Seven Grange Road and we have Teesside International Airport, the physical stores. And then we have our own website, which is www.housesana.uk. Um, and then we have Instagram, which has all of our like recent um, images. We do a lot of photo shoots and fashion shows. So you can kind of keep up to date with what's going on um, there. We do also sell on other pl- platforms like Silk Fred as well. Um, we're also on Higher Street. So, you know, if you ever wanted to hire an outfit out, we're on there as well. Um, and then on different wholesale platforms. But um, yeah, like I said, if you keep, you know, check out our Instagram, you can kind of see all the new items and you can see the design process through to the, you know, manufactured item as well, which is amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been awesome to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time.